Dear God, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the health, sufficient health that you give us. Thank you for the body of Christ and uh, for your presence with us because you, you comfort us and uh, you strengthen us. We can come to you. Lord, we thank you because today we, we get to have the privilege to study Ephesians chapter 4 and we see the, the gifts of uh, Christ for his church. And so, Lord, we pray that you may give us uh, understanding and that we may be encouraging one another, that we may have a good discussion and um, most of all, Lord, that it would be memorable, applied, and uh, that we would be uh, pleasing pleasing you as we meditate on those things and endeavor to apply them. Amen. Alright, so today's text is from uh, Ephesians 4 and we will read 7 through 16. 7 through 16. So if you have a Bible, just uh, take it and uh, we're going to read a few texts today in an effort to see what the, the whole Bible says about the um, the topic of spiritual gifts. We'll see that it, it's very much about spiritual gifts in Ephesians 4. So Ephesians 4. And then let's start to read in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men in saying he ascended what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions the earth or of the earth he who descended into is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things and he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Alright, so today the teaching is uh, entitled with a, a one-liner that summarizes the, the gist of the passage, and here it is. Everyone has a gift to grow the church in love. Everyone has a gift to grow the church in love. So every one of you, myself, my direct blood family, all of you, the family of Christ, every one of us, we have a gift to grow the church in love. Do you think of yourself in, in this way? That you, yourself, you have a gift to grow the church in love. Perhaps you're wondering, what is this gift? Do I even have a gift? Well, today we will see what God has done to really grow his church in love 
with the different gifts that he has given. So I want this to be interactive as much as possible. So I will raise a couple questions. And this time they will be uh, really uh, multifaceted. So I'm sure you'll have plenty of things to say. Uh, don't hesitate to uh, say something. If you want to also ask a question or make a comment, feel free to interrupt at any time. So the text starts by saying, but. So usually, what does that mean as far as what we need to do when we study the passage? So verse 7 starts with the word but. You need to go back. So let's go back. Who can read for us verses 3 through 6? Loud and clear. Please. Thank you. So, what do you observe as a kind of a, a repeating theme in uh, in those verses that precede verse seven? What we just read. Is there anything that is repeated? Oh, in all. That's right. So it's talking about the body of Christ. And it's uh, saying that whatever he's discussing is true for everyone. He is saying, look at it, look at it. I'm not even going to tell you, hopefully. So what is he repeatedly, repeatedly mentioning? It's all in the text, so if you don't look at the text, you won't, you won't find out. One, one, one. There is one Lord, one faithfulness, that's the Lord Jesus. There's one Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. There is one God, that's God the Father, so that's the Trinity. There's one baptism, that would be spiritual baptism. We're all united with God. One faith, that's the Scripture. There's one Scripture, there's one content, the objective body of truth of the faith. Um, so that's uh, our faith is based on this one faith in the Scriptures. And so he makes those comments one, one, one. He even says at the beginning, there is one body. One body. What's the one body? The church. And one spirit. So he's talking about, in verses 3 through 6, he talks about the, the unity of the church. Right? And then, in verse 7... The text starts by saying, but, so please take a look again at verse 7 and see what's the contrast. The word but is a, is a clause for contrast. So he's making a contrast between what precedes, which we just saw is the unity of the church, and then what's following. Sure. So we're saying that the word but is a word that indicates a contrast and it uh, it's forces us to go back to what precedes. So we just did that and it, it talked about the unity of the church in the preceding context. And then after discussing the unity of the church, he says, but. And so the question is, what is the next 
segment that uh, Paul is discussing that is contrasted with the but. Individuality. That's right. I will call it diversity. The diversity of the church, which comes from the individual members, right? So he says, we are all one. We all have the same God. We have the same scriptures. We are all united with the spirit. We're one church. There is one Holy Spirit who is in all of us. But to each one, there is a difference. We are all the same in the body of Christ. We have the same communion with God. But when it comes to spiritual gifts, there are differences. So he again mentions the diversity of the church right after the unity of the church. And that's uh, those two things, the unity and diversity, they come from God. God is one. He's one essence. There's one God. And he is also triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within himself. So there is unity and diversity within God. And actually, this is what is found in the whole universe. In the whole universe, in the, the ancient uh, Greek philosophers and the people who have thought about the world since there, there are people thinking, they have wondered, how can it be that this world has unity? Because there are laws that are the same for all people everywhere, like the law of, gra of gravity. And then you have uh, all kinds of uh, things that are true for everyone, such as the weight of, a, of an electron or whatever it might be, things that are just true for everyone, math. Math is true for everyone everywhere. You don't get to decide that uh, two plus two is gonna be six. It's not correct. And that's, there is a truth about that for everyone. So there is a unity that governs the whole universe. And yet there is diversity. We say that no two human beings are alike. We see that God makes everyone unique. We see that there's no two snowflakes alike. You see the trees and the flowers and the animal kingdom. There's such diversity in the world, but it's not just diversity, there's also unity. So people have wondered forever how these two things can come. And they come because God is one and he's triune. He has diversity and unity within himself. And he is the one who is building the church and so the church is therefore having unity and diversity within itself. So then we dive into the, the passage. And the passage is about the diversity of the church with spiritual gifts. And the text says in verse 7, But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. So it is discussing spiritual gifts. I'm going to tell you a little bit more why. But later on he says, And he gave gifts to men. And the Greek word is anthropos, so he's saying he gave gifts not just to males, but to everyone. He gave gifts to everyone. And then he's going to talk about specific gifts that he gave in the early church, such as the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers. And in 1 Corinthians 12, where we have the, the most detailed description, description of spiritual gifts in the whole Bible, it uh, spans from chapter 12 to chapter 14, then in the first chapter it discusses key spiritual gifts and in verse 28 he says and he first gave the apostles then the prophets then the teachers so what i'm trying to tell you is that these offices that are discussed later on they are also spiritual gifts they are kind of unique where it's both people and spiritual gift at the same time and then there at the end he says we all we all have a gift and we are all part of the body and we are all supposed to make the whole body work together and be held together. You see that? So he's talking about spiritual gifts. And so then the question I have for you is this. 
What do we learn about spiritual gifts in verse 7? So it, it is at this point that you know you really have to put your, um, your thinking cap. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. What do we learn about spiritual gifts in that verse? I think one thing you, uh, is that you already said it many times is that everyone has one. Each one of us. Okay. Uh, Let's read. Everyone has a gift. Okay. You want to say something else? Uh, yeah, that it has been given to uh, from Christ. Okay. Um, I'll write this one. Gift from. Christ. I mean, just think about this. You have a gift from Jesus Christ. You have a gift from Jesus Christ. That's amazing. You have something that's unique that Christ himself has given to you. I mean, we have to ponder that. If, if there was a, um, a president in our nation that you really loved, he was really doing good for the country, and then for some reason he was coming and giving a gift specifically for you, you would think much of that. For me? You mean me? Yeah. So Christ is far above all the rulers of this world, and he has given to you to each one of you, a gift. Now, let's look at the uh, passage uh, in the Bible. It's going to be 1 Corinthians 12 that I referenced earlier. And then we will see this... Uh, this same discussion with more details on spiritual gifts. And I will start reading in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. All right. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant. See, that's one of the few occurrences in the Bible where Paul says, I'm about to tell you something that most people are ignorant about. And I don't want that to be the case. So I'm going to write so that it will not be so for you. So he really says, I do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed. You know that when we were pagans, we were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. You see again, the unity and diversity, one Spirit, many different gifts. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given, so think of you. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So this gift you have received, it's, it's not for you in a strictest sense. It's something that is uh, actually given to you for the benefit of others. So not only would it be 
improper to ignore this gift from Christ. But Christ has given you this gift that you have, or you may have several ones, so that you may be a blessing to others. It says it's for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the, same, by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpre interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. The Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. And then it, it proceeds by talking about the analogy of the body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then it's talking about the different parts and making them speak as if they were alive. And one part says, like the nose says to uh, the leg, I have no need of you. And uh, the point is, you cannot say to anybody, I have no need of you. So we have need of you. We have need of you. You have gifts, you have to use them. And so we see here that everyone has received a gift. Everyone. Um, what else do we learn in, in Ephesians 4, 7 about spiritual gifts? <clears throat> That's right. There is a measure, right? Every gift has a measure given by Christ. I have heard preachers say things like that. They would say, I don't compare myself to another preacher because that's not me. This preacher, he has a measure, a personality, a certain gifting, and that's, that's him. I'm not supposed to copy this person to just preach just like they do. Everyone has different ways. There is a measure. And you may just think of, think of whatever you're doing right now to serve the church. You might be tempted to, to be discouraged because someone else has a particular gift. But remember, this is the measure of Christ's gift. And also we grow in our gifts because it's like a muscle. If you, for example, have received the gift of teaching, but you never really study the Bible and, uh, and, and try to see what others are, are are saying, well, you won't grow in your gift, right? And, um, and the same would be true about, uh, about uh, say, uh, mercy. So I was listening this week uh, to a preacher again, and he, he was uh, saying that there was a, another preacher who had a gift of mercy in ways that was a little bit uh, foreign to this, this first preacher. So the first one would go to the hospital and could spend hours and hours and hours uh, with the person and uh, uh, you could see that uh, it was a gift. It was beyond normal. Um, but the other preacher, uh, for him, it would be, he could not help but go into the street to evangelize people. 
And the first one was so timid, he would, he would not dare to go uh, street preaching or something like that. And so, again, there is a measure. And uh, I'll, I, I just thought about something, so I'll mention it here. Did you know that every single spiritual gift that there is in the Bible, it is a microcosm of what all Christians should do? Every single gift is basically one gift that's, that's uh, given to a greater measure than what every Christian is supposed to do. For example, there's the gift of mercy, right? We learn about that in Romans 12. Well, we're all supposed to be merciful, but some people, they are just gifted to be a lot more merciful than most people. Speaking in tongues, it was actually a gift of prayer and praise in public. That was a sign for unbelieving Jews, and it seeds today. But it was prayer and praise, and guess what? We're all supposed to pray. Uh, what about the evangelism? Some people are gifted as evangelists, and they are just passionate, and they do it all the time, and they do it very effectively, but we're all supposed to evangelize. And on and on you could go. Giving. Some people are having a measure for giving that is just not like other folks. Maybe they have more resources. Maybe they just decide to give a lot more. Maybe they have a particular wisdom in, in just having resources in such a way that they can donate more, whatever the case may be, but we're all supposed to give. So there is this measure, right? It's important. And uh, now, let's turn to Romans 12. Romans 12. And we will read um, a few things that are in the same line of thought. If you want to do more studies uh, at home, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, those would be key passages that talk about spiritual gifts. There's also 1 Peter 4 that Pastor Grady preached on. Whoever serves, whoever speaks. Those are the gifts, categories of giftings, either serving or speaking. So Romans 12. And, and by the way, uh, in Romans 12 starts with verse 1. And we know this passage. It says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And in the same thought, you know, we, we talk about that, be renewed, uh, spiritual acts of worship, the renewal of your mind, but we forget that right after discussing that, when he gives this command, that's just at the end of the theological treatise from chapter 1 to 11, when he says, therefore, worship God with your body and have a renewed mind, then he actually fleshes it out right after that with spiritual gifts. And so that's what he says in verse 3. For, which again connects to what he just said, so that's how you do it. How do you do it? For by the grace given to me, I say that everyone, to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of another. 
having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exalts in his exaltation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So you see here that he says, you have been given a gift. And there is also a measure of faith. Did you see that? Verse 3. According to the measure we have given, been given faith, according to the measure that Christ has apportioned. So not only do we learn from here that faith is a gift from Christ, but there is a measure. There is a measure of faith. A measure of faith that is going to be sufficient for you to use your gifts and to trust God in using those gifts. Do you see that? So you have gifts and you may be thinking, I, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable using them or I, I don't know what it is. Well, Christ has given you a measure of faith to use that gift that he has given you the measure that you need. What else do you see in the passage? And we may have to pick up the pace because it's only verse 7. But uh, I think it's important. Well, let's move on to question number two. So then it says, Therefore, he ascended on high and led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. That's Ephesians 4. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So here's the question on these two verses, three verses for you. What are the results of the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven? What are the results of the ascension? Jesus has ascended into heaven, so what? What happened? All right, he led a host of captives. So let, let me dive into this one first then. So you might recall when, when I, have the, uh, I had the opportunity to preach, we, we talked about that a little, a little bit. So the passage uh, that uh, I was uh, tasked to explain was first uh, Peter 3, 18 through 19. Uh, a little bit extended, but uh, let's read this again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So I explained that made alive in the spirit means that his human spirit uh, was, um, was basically no longer separated with God. So here, when Jesus is mentioned to be made alive in the spirit, he's still a disembodied um, soul or spirit. And so it says in, in this uh, disembodied soul, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So in Luke 16, in Luke 16, we see a story. It's not a parable because it doesn't have the key headings that the parable typically has. And it also has a name, Lazarus. And there is no parable where you have an actual person named because this, is, this time, 
it's not a, a parable, it's an actual event. So in Luke 16, Jesus explains what happens to people when they die. And so this would be the surface of the earth. And then this would be heaven. And then this would be Hades, which is the Greek for the Old Testament Sheol. It's basically the realm of the dead, which is always pictured as in the heart of the earth in the Bible. So when the, the um, when Lazarus and the rich man die in Luke 16, they both go to Hades, but they go to different places. So there is a huge chasm between the two. And then there is here, Abraham, it's called Abraham's bosom, and then Lazarus is here. And then here there is peace and rest. And then there is a lower part where there is the rich man. And he's basically an unbeliever, it's not about his money. But typically, it's hard for people who are rich to go into the kingdom of heaven, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the rich man, he's there, and then the text says that he's burning with fire. So, if you will, this was some, uh, to some extent, you could call that a pre-heaven, which is called sometimes the uh, transitionary state. So anyways, it was a peaceful place with Abraham, with all the Old Testament saints that were resting. And this was a pre-hell. He was already suffering. And he was looking up, seeing Abraham. And they were looking down, seeing him. There was a great chasm between the two so that no one could cross. So there is no such thing as um, purgatory. There's no third place. You're either in peace or you are in suffering. And you cannot go and they cannot go. There's no crossing. It's over. You have one life. You have to trust Jesus Christ because after that, it's over. There's judgment and the judgment is eternal eternal life or eternal death so he's right there and he cannot cross and then uh, when jesus died he went there he went with the peace because he had finished salvation he said it is finished he did not suffer in uh, in hell he did not but at the bottom over there you might say there is the abyss where demons are. So do you remember in Luke 8, there is a, a demon possession and Jesus comes in contact with them and they say, there is a legion, and they say to Jesus, please do not send us to the abyss to be tormented before the time. You remember that? That's what it says. The text says, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. So the demons, actually they are demons that are bound right now. Demons, fallen angels. And they are at the bottom of the earth into the abyss. That's like a prison. So back to First um, Peter 3. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So Jesus also went there and he made a proclamation of victory to them. Now we are back here. Because the text says, he led a host of captives. So I'm trying to explain what that means. Please turn to Hebrews 11. 
Uh, and by the way, if you want to take notes in Romans 10, 7, it says this, Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So Christ went to the abyss. That's clearly implied in that text. And uh, the above verse says, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. So again, those themes of descended and ascended that we see in Ephesians 4 as well. So Christ ascended into the heavens. But before he did that, he, wa he had descended into the abyss and into also the bosom of Abraham, which was also called, by the way, it was also called paradise at the time. Okay, so in Hebrews 11, do you know what Hebrews 11 is all about? Who can tell us? Hebrews 11 is a long list of the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, right? And what is the one thing that is repeated in Hebrews 11? By faith. That's how you are a saint. Not because you do anything that is going to be make you stand out from the crowd. It is because you have faith in God, your Savior, knowing that you are a sinner. And they are, they are pretty obvious sinners in the list. Of all kinds. They are prostitutes. They are murderers. They are liars. Plenty of things. But by faith, they are saved. But then what does it say at the very end about all these Old Testament saints? It says this in verse 39, all and all these, though commanded through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So, so far we don't understand exactly all that it entails, but we know one thing, the Old Testament saints, they could not get the promise. They could not be made perfect until what? Until Jesus had come, and until the Christians were in the community of the New Testament era, until then, they could not inherit the promise, they could not be made perfect. So now we ask, what does it mean to be made perfect? So we can understand what they long awaited that could not be attained until Christ had accomplished his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And we find the answer in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 23, Hebrews 12, 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. So he contrasts the Old and New Covenant. And he, sta he says first, you've not come to Mount, Mount Sinai with all the scary things that were happening. Where the Old Testament saints, they were meeting with Moses and the law of Moses. He says... And of course, God and Mount Sinai, he says, you've not come to Mount Sinai. So what mount have you come to then? You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous or, or men made, made what? Perfect. So... What is it to be made perfect? It is to be in heaven, in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the very presence of God. You see that? You see that? The new Jerusalem, in the very presence of God, and of an innumerable company of angels. So what do we gather from those texts? Yes. It is Hebrews 12, 23, 24. 
So we learn that in the Old Testament, people had faith and they did not inherit the promise of the, the land with God in heaven. This pictural, this, uh, this uh, ultimate picture of uh, the promised land. They were in Hades. They were waiting. They were very much at peace. They were just like Abraham. They were at peace. They were some angels. But they were not made perfect just yet. Because they could not be made perfect until Jesus had come. And so what did Jesus do? He went to Hades. And then he took all these people, like another text says, that were bound by the power of death. And he took all of them. Because see the text says, he ascended. Where did he ascend? To heaven. And the text says, he led a host of captives. So those who are taken... The captives, they are going to heaven with him. That's what the text implies in Ephesians 4. So they have to be saints. And then when we look at those texts, we see that they could not be made perfect just yet. And in the Bible, being made perfect is to be made perfect when you are in the very presence of God. That's what the, the different usages uh, show in Matthew 5.48 and, and 1 Corinthians 13. When the perfect comes, we'll see him face to face. And so they are all taken to heaven and they are all made perfect in the new Jerusalem. And that's why in Revelations 21, 22, what comes down? The new Jerusalem comes down and all the people, all the saints from all ages are gathered before the Lamb. So that's what it means. And so when Jesus ascended, one of the things that he did was to take all the Old Testament saints and deliver them from the power of death and bring them to the third heaven, which is now paradise, because where Jesus goes, he takes paradise with him. And he took all those people, and now they are all in heaven. That's what he did. Now, what else did he do when he ascended? Exactly. What do you think that could mean? It's, it's, it's a little bit difficult to be 100% sure. Um, where I landed is that he's at the right hand of God and now he has all authority on about everything in heaven and on earth, which is also what we see in Matthew 28, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so now he feels all things. He is... He is not uh, anymore the suffering servant. He is the conquering king. He is in heaven and he has all authority over everything. And then the, if you were to go back, you remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples and he told them, it is your advantage in, Luke, in, uh, in John 16, it is your advantage that I go away. And they were like, what do you mean? Like, we want you to stay with us? And he says, no, it's better for you if I leave. Do you remember why? So you can take notes. That would be um, John 16, 7 and 8. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is your, to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, 
he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And in 1526, it says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So what did Jesus do when he ascended? He sent the helper. Who is? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So Jesus, when he ascended on high, he sent us the Holy Spirit. And therefore, what happens when the Holy Spirit was sent? On the day of Pentecost. The church was born. People were baptized by the Holy Spirit. And they started to have spiritual gifts. They started to speak in uh, uh, unknown they had never learned, rather, uh, foreign languages. And people were saying, I'm hearing him speaking my mother tongue. He's never been there. What's going on? And the message was, God saves people from all nations now. That was a sign. And that was the purpose, to show that the church now is not just the Jews. It's people from everywhere. And so they had, like, preaching and uh, ministering gifts of all kinds. We see that. So the church was born because Jesus ascended. That's the reward that he got. He got the bride. And before the wedding is completely happening, which is at the end of times, when there is the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, if I recall, because the church is already in, in heaven, then before that happens, there are the prenuptial gifts, just like in ancient times. There's the bride that's given by the Father to the Son, and then the son gives gifts to his bride. And that's what Christ did. He gave us the Holy Spirit. And with the Spirit comes the spiritual gifts. So what are the results of the ascension of Jesus? Jesus went to heaven. So what? Well, a lot of, a lot of things. He gave us the Holy Spirit so we can exist as a church. So we can be empowered by the Spirit. And he gave us spiritual gifts with the Spirit. He led the Old Testament saints from Hades to the New Jerusalem, the third heaven. And now he is at the right hand of God. He has all authority in the whole universe. And so we can have comfort that he's going to help us in the use of our gifts. And he says in the other passage we read, let us use them. Okay, so I, I, I probably will ask, uh, well, we'll see. Maybe I'll ask Pastor Grady more time. We'll see. But the, the next section is... Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So, the first thing that he mentions, in this section at least, is the gift of gifted men. God, the Son, gave gifted men to the church. The apostles are sent once. They are sent by Christ for the foundation of the church. That's what the word apostle means, sent once. The prophets, the word means someone who speaks on behalf of God. Prophecy is public speaking for God. A prophet is someone who is giving a message from God. And at the time it was through revelation. So we saw in, in uh, Ephesians 3 that the apostles and the prophets, they had revelations that were never given to the sons of men in the Old Testament. And they, these revelations became the foundation of the church because they revealed Jesus Christ and the new covenant. And we see also in Ephesians 2.20 and 21 
that the apostles and the prophets, they are the foundation of the church, Christ himself being the cornerstone. So I'm telling you those two things because today there are no more apostles and no more prophets for the very simple two reasons that one, these were given revelations from Jesus Christ about the, the Bible. And today we no longer need those revelations because we have the completed canon. And secondly, these were the foundation of the church. So when you lay, a you, when you lay the foundation of a building, you lay it once and then you build on top of that. And we are the living stones that are added to the church and we're never going back to put the foundation again. The apostle says, uh, we do not lay another foundation but Jesus Christ. So today the foundation has been laid. The church is already growing and thriving after 2000 years. And so we no longer have those gifts of uh, apostles and prophets. But there is something very interesting that happens is that the apostles, hopefully I can spell that right, and then the prophets, yeah, let's do it like this. Prophets, they had differences. These were traveling and staying shortly in churches and they were planting, right? Planting churches. We see that in the book of Acts, plain and obvious. Paul travels everywhere, he plants churches, he stays, he teaches, and off he goes. Prophets, we see in 1 Corinthians 14, so I will say here the book of Acts. And then here we see that they, they, were, they were teaching, the prophets were teaching in churches. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 14, where there were prophets that were regularly there giving revelations. And we also see in uh, Acts 13 that some prophets and teachers from uh, Antioch traveled to teach another church. So it's possible that they would go somewhere, but they would be invested in that local church to teach. Because at the time, again, there were no uh, New Testament. There was no New Testament. But later, what we have is, and that's the order, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then pastor teachers. Okay, so uh, I'll make a quick note as to why this is not five different categories, but only four. Um, you have plenty of people who say the fivefold ministries, the fivefold ministries. They talk a lot about the fivefold ministries. So they would say that in Ephesians 4:11, it talks about apostles and then prophets and then evangelists and pastors and teachers, and they say it's five. So they have a whole uh, thing that's uh, uh, just uh, guiding their, their church and their vision and their ministry with those five things. So people are called apostles, some are called prophets, some are called evangelists, others are pastors, and some are teachers. But it's actually, it's actually uh, a, an incorrect interpretation. Because if you look in the text, and in the Greek it's very clear, in the English uh, ESV version it says, the the apostles, the prophets, some, some translations say, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor teachers. And you'll notice this. It says some apostles, some, or you can replace it with the, it's the same story. There is an actual uh, Greek word here. Some as prophets, some 
as evangelists and some as pastors and then it says some is that correct teachers do we see that we do not there is no some here because there are no there, there isn't five categories there are only four so that's why there is a dash here pastor teachers so there's a rule in the Greek it's called the Granville sharp rule it basically says if you have two nouns that are plural that are coming uh, one after the other with the end in between it's just describing more the first noun and they are the two two the two of them are the same so it says pastors in the plural and then there's and the second noun and the rule in the Greek is that these are one and the same. All people who study the Greek know it very well, agree with that. And that's why there is only one here. There is some. Some are pastors and teachers. Because there's no pastor who is not a teacher. That's the thing. There's no pastor that's not a teacher. But there are some teachers that are not pastors. So in, uh, in the qualifications of the pastor in 1 Timothy 3, it says he must be able to teach. If he doesn't teach, he does not qualify. And that's to help us remember that uh, uh, that's the primary uh, task of the pastor, to teach the people, right? To feed the flock. And uh, pastoring is, uh, is one gift. Teaching is another gift. So many people have different gifts. You may have different gifts as well. In fact, Paul once time once uh, he said uh, to Timothy, uh, "God made me an apostle, and a teacher, and a preacher." Those are three different gifts. And uh, there are plenty, plenty of us that have multiple different gifts. We just have to practice uh, what we are good at, what we like to do, what the opportunities. Um, lead us to do in the church and then continue to do that and see if it blesses the body if it's a blessing to the body well then it's going to be something that's definitely a gift maybe we need to grow into things like everyone else so it's not going to be perfect but the point is that if you want to know what's your gift well get at it do something ask people do something and then be be open to feedback and then you'll find out and usually, it's really something that God gives you um, in your heart as a burden, right? So, Pastor Gabe, he obviously has a burden to evangelize, right? Some of you have a burden for the poor. And some of us have a burden to know the word and teach it to others. And if you don't do it, you know this, there's something that's not right. You just are a burden to do that. And then when you do it, it's a blessing to other people. Well, that's your gift. And you, you have multiple ones, maybe. So you need to uh, investigate. Okay, so we have those four. It's not five, it's four. Any questions on this? No questions? All right, so what do we find about these? I just said that these, they were only for the first century. Maybe second century. That's about it. Okay, but what do we find? The evangelists, they do the exact same thing. They travel, they stay in churches, they plant churches. And what pastors and teachers are doing? They do the same thing. They teach in churches and they just equip the people. They don't need new revelations like the prophet did. They have the revelation of the scriptures. So they teach the scriptures. They prophesy the scripture. And the evangelists, 
they don't have the miracles that the apostles had because the church is already in existence but they are still uh, doing um, the uh, the key which is the planting of course the first evangelist uh, with the transitionary period was uh, Philip the evangelist we learn about that in Acts 21 8 and he was also making miracles and uh, we find out that he had a burden what was his burden his burden was to see people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ so what what happens is that um, people were in Jerusalem the Christians and they did not want to go to the uh, the Gentiles we learn from various passages that they actually were uh, uncomfortable talking to the Gentiles you can call that racism because that's what it was then the one text says they spoke the gospel only to the Jews and so what happened Philip he had enough Christ told us we have to go to the whole world we have to go to Samaria so what did he do he went on his own on his own Philip the evangelist decided I'm done with this I'm going to Samaria and he went and he preached the gospel and there was a church that was born there and then you remember he was taken to talk to the Ethiopian eunuch out of the desert and then he was like translated and he went to Sancria and that's where we find him in Acts 21 where he is he is in a church and he has four daughters that are prophesying and I'll leave you with this one thought and um, I'll ask Pastor Grady for us to pick up on on this section next week we don't usually think about that but all these four categories they are actually meant to do something and that is to equip us for the work of ministry it's not just the pastors who equip us for the work of ministry it's not just the pastors here we have multiple gifts listed and not only that and it's kind of a trader for last next week the text says that I cannot grow without you did you hear that I cannot grow without you the text says the whole body grows as every part supplies what it's supposed to do in love so we'll end there with the title you have received a spiritual gift to grow the church in love let's pray dear God we thank you for this day thank you for the study of this passage Lord uh, I pray that it would be uh, edifying and it would grow the church in love and Help us all to be involved in that work because you equip us for ministry. Thank you so much for the gift of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the spiritual gifts we have received. And we thank you. Amen.